welcome to From Florida, where we share stories about the people, research and innovations taking place at the University of Florida. I'm your host, Nikki Brown. The bald eagle has been our national emblem since 1782 and as such is recognised throughout the world. But despite being well known, there's still much to learn about this majestic bird. And our guest today has the stories and other information that I suspect will both delight and surprise you. Jack E. Davis is a professor of history and the Rothman Family Chair in the Humanities, specialising in environmental history and sustainability studies. He is also the Pulitzer Prize winning author of The Gulf, The Making of an American Sea, and he has a new book out this month published by W.W. Norton, which is likely to be just as well received, The Bald Eagle, The Improbable Journey of America's Bird. Welcome, Jack. My pleasure. Thank you for having me. It's wonderful to have you here. I'd love to start our conversation by having you read just a short excerpt from the book, if you don't mind. Oh, sure. I'd love to. Let me give you a little bit of background on this excerpt. This is 1979. And bald eagle population is imperiled around the country, primarily the the lower 48 states. And it's the beginning of the restoration era when there's a movement afoot to try to restore the population. And this is uh, about one woman's participation in that restoration. Her name is Doris Magger. Bulging out from between the upper branches of a loblolly pine, A large finger-lapped arrangement of sticks formed the familiar aesthetic of an industrious eagle couple. For some unknown reason, the pair had not returned for the 1979 nesting season. Staring up, Doris Magger was aware of the centrality of nests in the lives of bald eagles. Those compositions of meticulous labor, enigmas of intricacy and strength that marry art with utility are essential to the renewal of life. The identity of few birds is as closely attached to their nest as the bald eagles is to its. None in North America build larger or stouter ones. The balds are emblematic of their species' resilience. Nests have been a key variable in determining the population's decline, and they would be imperative to its revival. Without them, Magger knew there would be no birds. Magger was aware of the violent, spontaneous weather that frequented central Florida also, and at the moment, dark clouds filled the sky to the west. Standing at the foot of the loblolly, one hand hesitantly on a climbing ladder, hanging down from the height of a fire lookout tower, she was intent on spending time in the nativity of the former occupants. Magger had never scaled a tree before, much less in a storm. She reached over and touched an ominous-looking lightning scar running down the tree's trunk to the ground. Pushing ahead of the storm, the wind pulsed and the green needles trembled in the branches high above. One eyewitness described the tree as spindly. Another called it wind-whipped. Jeff Klinkenberg, the outdoor editor for the St. Petersburg Times, is the one who used the word spindly. Here she was, he reflected decades later, 53 years old and climbing a ladder I would not have dared to climb at my age, then 30. Before putting herself at the mercy of the swelling wind, Magger tied a red bandana around her head of silver hair, which she had had cut and styled in a new hairdo for the occasion. Owl earrings dangled beside her cheeks, and retaining the raptor theme, a spread eagle necklace wreathed her neck. She wore black jeans, a denim shirt, and gray running shoes, yet her jogging routine had been inconsistent of late. In relating that detail, she confessed to Klinkenberg, I've got fat little legs, and I probably shouldn't be that far off the ground at my age. She slipped into a safety harness, secured to an upper branch. Alongside the harness line, the grounding cable of a lightning rod chased down the side of the tree. A number of precautions were taken that day, and Magger added one of her own by swallowing a motion sickness pill. 
I get airsick and I get seasick, she again confessed to Klinkenberg, and I'm probably going to get nest sick. Magger put one foot on a lower rung and followed that with the other on the next rung. Grabbing a third at eye level with both hands, she stared nervously into the tree's rust-colored scaly bark and coaxed herself toward a 50-foot summit. Whenever the wind kicked up, the tree creaked like an old door. When it swung like one, she would pause, grip the ladder tighter, and take a deep breath. She shouted to a friend below, Get down on your knees and pray, Viola. That's dedication for you. <laughs> so she was drawn to the birds to do this, I guess, to draw attention to what was happening to the eagles. That's exactly right. She was with uh, the Florida Audubon Society, and she had started a raptor rehabilitation center there, which was really in her backyard. And she was trying to raise money to build an aviary at the headquarters of Florida Audubon Society. And, and she succeeded with the, with the help of others. Okay, so what drew you to the bald eagle then? We've got her story. I suspect you won't be climbing any trees, or will you? You know, I wouldn't mind. What I didn't read in here is her view from the top and how spectacular it was. And I, I would love to see that view that the bald eagles have from their nests. They build their nests in the top of tall trees, usually the tallest in the area, because they want to be have a good visual of their territory. Uh, they also want to see the water around them where their fish are, and uh, that's their primary source of food. But what drew me to the book is I'm an environmental writer. As you said, I'm an environmental historian. And, you know, generally when we reflect on our environmental past, we tend to focus on the grim and the tragic. And I think readers are getting a little overwhelmed by that. And I, so I wanted to write an environmental success story. And this is one really spectacular story. You know, it has its tragedies. It has its grim moments. But ultimately, it's, it's this wonderful story about the bird and its relationship with us and how we've changed. The bird hasn't changed, but, but we've changed. And, and the eagle appears on the Great Seal of the United States. So do you know how it came to be selected? Because it has been a, a journey together, I guess, in many ways. It has been a journey. And of course, as you read, that's in my subtitle. And yes, I do. I devote an entire chapter to how the bald eagle got on the Great Seal of the United States. Developing a seal during the revolution, uh, after America declared its independence and was fighting for it, it sorely needed a national credential on the, on the world stage, and that would be, of course, a seal or a coat of arms. And it took um, three committees, 14 delegates in Congress, along with some consultants and artists, and, and multiple, multiple proposals, and uh, six years to finally come up with the right seal. The bald eagle was, in, was not included until the very end. It was proposed by Charles Thompson, who was secretary of the Continental Congress and really the most powerful man in Congress. And I think he was really a little tired of all these committees not coming up with anything. And so he took upon himself to design the seal. Bald eagles were all over. This is in Philadelphia. And they were all over the eastern seaboard, very visible all the time. So all he had to do was look out his window or walk down the street and he would have seen a bald eagle. And the eagles had long been, not bald eagles, but eagles had long been a part of, of national heraldry dating back to the ancients. But the bald eagle is an all-American bird. It lives nowhere else but in North America. So Charles Thompson, while perhaps being inspired by those eagles on earlier coats of arms, chose the right one for the U.S., and that was the bald eagle. But it wasn't everyone else's choice, right? It wasn't. Every, well, 
It depends on whether you believe Benjamin Franklin or not. Okay. <laughs> and, you know, many people think that he argued against the bald eagle appearing on the Great Seal or being put on the Great Seal. There's no evidence that he ever did that. He did object to the bald eagle as being a representative, at least in a letter to his daughter, that he never uh, apparently sent to her. Uh, that he did object to the, the the bald eagle as a national representative. He called it a, a bird of low morality, um, you know, a coward, a thief, and and everything else. Um, but what he did not do, and he did compare its morality with the, the the wild turkey. But what he did not do is propose the turkey for the the great seal of the United States, which many people think he did. And uh, he, I'm not going to tell you who he wanted for the seal because you're going to have to read the book to find out. Okay, that's a good. But lead. it's a huge surprise. It it knocked me out of my chair when I read it. So, in terms of why he called the bald eagle a coward and a bird of bad morality, what led him to use such terms? Well, you know, it's interesting because people could call the bald eagle noble and brave in one breath and then turn around and call it a thieving coward in the the next. And in fact, Franklin did such a thing. The bald eagle is, it's a scavenger, uh, like like a vulture, uh, and uh, it also steals from other birds, including other eagles, um, most notoriously, though, from osprey, which come across as an innocent fishing bird, which I guess I suppose you can say that. But they're also expert fishers. They're better fishers than bald eagles are. And so bald eagles are smart. They know where right. to get the food. They see a, uh, let the osprey catch it, and then they steal it from them in midair. I've seen right here at Payne's Prairie Preserve, I've seen two bald eagles fight over fish in midair battle. And that fish go between the two of them five times. Wow. Yeah. Who ended up winning? I don't remember. I think the juvenile. Okay. I think, as I recall, it was a juvenile and an adult. And as far as that um, being a, a coward, I've heard that word used to describe bald eagles. Where did that come from? Well, a lot of people called the bald eagle a coward, and that was associated with it being a thief and uh, stealing from other birds. But also Audubon, who, by the way, hated the bald eagle, called it a coward because the bald eagle wouldn't sit still and let him shoot it. I mean, I, I was amazed when I read this passage. He said the bird flew off zigzagging. You know, it didn't stick around to take a bullet like a real man. Um, now I'm paraphrasing him there. I'm adding my own words, but that you know, that's essentially what he's saying. So, what are some of the other things that you were surprised by when you did your work, looking more closely at the bald eagle? I was surprised by a lot because I didn't know much about bald eagles. I grew up in Florida, in the Tampa Bay area, when the the bay was in bad shape ecologically. And so there weren't many birds, there weren't many fish, and we didn't see ospreys and we didn't see bald eagles. So I didn't didn't see my first bald eagle in the wild probably until the 1990s. So when I sat down to write this book, there was just so much to learn. One of the things that surprised me is how much Americans throughout the 19th century and on into the early 20th century, like Audubon, loathed or disliked or even hated the bald eagle, the species itself. They loved the symbol. They loved the image of the bald eagle. They put it on everything. Sports teams, uniforms, business logos, you know, of course, all across the federal government. But they didn't like the species itself because it's a predator bird. And they believe that it would fly off with sheep, with calves, with turkeys and pigs uh, and chickens. Uh, A bald eagle cannot lift that much. It can lift a chicken, but it can't lift a sheep. It can't lift a, a calf. And they were also accused of kidnapping babies. Mothers were warned, don't leave your child unattended outdoors lest a bald eagle fly away with it. 
And there were all kinds of stories, uh, apocryphal, highly apocryphal stories uh, about bald eagles kidnapping babies and taking human babies and taking them back to their nest. There was even you know, McGuffey's Reader, which was probably next to the Bible, the most read book in America in the 19th century, had a story about a bald eagle stealing a child and taking it back to its nest. And so a predator, like a wolf, like a, a bear, like a coyote, the bald eagle was a, was a predator that was to be eradicated. So an eagle scene was an eagle to be shot. They were truly vilified then. Truly vilified, yes. The eagle has special significance and sacredness for many Indigenous people. What did you learn when you were looking into that aspect of their history? That, that was also an interesting history to me. The, the eagle, among many Native American cultures, is a sacred bird. It's a spirit bird, a messenger between the people and their ancestors or, or, or the creator. And so it's a high-flying bird. So it was seen as the bird that would fly close to heaven and could deliver these, these messages. And their feathers in many Native cultures are, are conduits to that spirit world and extremely important historically uh, and even today, important in, in rituals in Native American communities. And so they've long been a bird that they sometimes raised so they could gather their feathers, depending on the Native American group, or they were captured and killed and then plucked, but all in a very ritualistic way. And not in hordes, you know, not in hundreds or, th or even tens, but a few birds at a time. And of course, we went through a period where we almost lost the eagles. Uh, they, their numbers went down very low, um, in large part because of DDT. They are in many ways a phoenix, if you pardon the pun, where they have come back. Twice. So that's happened twice. Uh, I talked about how uh, Americans were shooting bald eagles at every opportunity in the 19th century and on into the early 20th century. They brought the bald eagle in the lower 48 states to the brink of extinction. Alaska, the territory of Alaska, had a bounty on bald eagles from 1917 to 1952 and paid bounties on over 120,000 bald eagles during that period. So it was a close call in the early 20th century. In 1940, Congress passed the Bald Eagle Protection Act to uh, preserve the bald eagle. And then five years later, DDT was released on the market used in agriculture and, and commercial applications, but also in the home. Just as the, you know, the population was poised to come back, DDT uh, has a devastating effect, not only on bald eagles, but on a lot of bird life and, and fish life. And, it, and the bald eagle population plummeted. Uh, to the point that in 1963, the nesting population in the lower 48 was under 500. Now, that's compared with probably 300 to 500,000 bald eagles that lived in North America at the time of European contact. And they've had a resurgence. Where do we see the vast majority of their colonies or where do they live for the most part? They lived, uh, as I said earlier, only in North America, so northern Mexico and throughout the U.S. and Canada. And Minnesota has the largest bald eagle nesting population, probably around 10,000, which is pretty phenomenal. Uh, largely because it has so many, there are so many lakes and clean water lakes with lots of fish up there. But Florida has the second highest bald eagle nesting population, about 1,500. A significant difference between Florida and Minnesota, but still pretty good and, and better than other states. And we see a lot of them right here around Alachua County, which is wonderful. I mean, there's some a dozen or more nests 
out at Noonan's Lake in um, Payne's Prairie. You see bald eagles all the time. So they're healthy across the United States uh, today. There's a lot of difference in terms of temperature and the environment that they're in. Are there variations within the eagles that are found in the north and the south or pretty much the same? They're just highly adaptable. Well, to a point, they're highly adaptable. There, some scientists will say that there are sub, two subspecies. There's a northern bald eagle and the southern bald eagle. And some scientists don't recognize them as subspecies, but recognize different gene pools. So the bald eagles in the north in Canada and the northern U.S. tend to be larger and so better equipped for the cold, uh, but not well equipped for the heat of the south. And the bald eagles down here in the southern states, below the Mason-Dixon, we'll say, tend to be smaller and can take the heat. And uh, avian diseases that northern bald eagles have shown they're not immune to. But what's interesting about bald eagles is they migrate between breeding season and they go back to the same place every year to breed and nest. They, they mate for life. They maintain a fidelity to the same nest year after year after year. As long as that nest exists, it doesn't isn't blown down in a storm or somebody doesn't come along and cut down the tree, which they're not supposed to. And, uh, and they'll return. But when they migrate between breeding season, the, the female will go in her direction, the male will go in her direction, pretty good idea, perhaps. Right, time away and, from one another. Uh, yes. Uh, and uh, But uh, some of them will fly long distances, say Florida birds. Some will fly, June, generally the juveniles fly longer or uh, farther, will fly to Canada or New England uh, or the Midwestern, upper Midwestern states. And then the northern ones will come south. So in many cases, southern eagles end up in the territory of northern eagles after they've left and come south, and they more or less switch places. I've heard they're very good parents, too. They're extremely loyal parents. There's generally two uh, eggs to a nest, um, and they uh, their their domestic instincts are, are really a model for you know all of nature and the rest of us. They raise their young with such care, feed them so well that by the time they leave the nest, they leave the area at the end of breeding season, the young are are sometimes larger than the parents. Wow. We've spoken about the connection between the eagle and our nation, patriotism, and then we've spoken about the environment and the impact that the environment has had on their well-being. So what are the linkages that you're making here between the eagle, patriotism, and environmentalism in this book? Well, there are a number of connections and or linkages. Um, when the, you know, the United States was still a young republic, it, it struggled to establish its own identity separate of Europe. At the same time, it, it was culturally derivative of Europe. Its, its styles in art, architecture, and literature were influenced by European styles. But what was distinctive about the United States, what it could hold up is different from Europe and even superior to Europe was its natural assets, was nature. Nature added to American exceptionalism. Yeah, I mean, and the Europeans were envious. And, and I'm not talking about just natural resources. I'm talking about the robustness, the beauty, the vastness of nature in America. And so nature was the original source of America's separate identity. And lording over the, all of that was the bald eagle, this native, this endemic, this bird endemic to North America. With its, as I say, with this don't tread on me stare. Right. Charles Thompson couldn't have picked a better bird as far as I'm concerned. But then a century later, in the early 20th century, we almost lose the bald eagle, as I, as I mentioned earlier, because we were shooting it, treating it as a common predator that needed to be controlled. And in 1940, a year before Congress went to war against fascist tyranny, it passed the Bald Eagle Protection Act, making the argument 
that it was necessary to preserve the living species behind the symbol. Because if we had lost that species, if we'd lost that bird, then it would have been a disgrace to the symbol. It would have undermined the integrity of the symbol. And today, when we see, because of the eagle's restoration, it's phenomenal restoration in the late 20th century. Today, when we see a bald eagle, it still very much symbolizes American patriotism, uh, national strength and courage and, and unity. But it also has come to symbolize a society that has forged a, a wiser balance with nature and uh, a more secure future for humanity. You mentioned the connection of Florida having the second most bald eagles in the nation. Are there any other connections with the state and the eagle? I mean, that was another surprise. I just love it, being a Floridian. And um, there are, so the first person to link DDT to the decline of the bald eagle population, which he did in the 1950s, was a, a bald-headed retired banker from Winnipeg uh, who lived in Canada. And he retired to Florida when he was 59, just about 60 years old. This is a banker. This is not a scientist. This is not an ornithologist, okay? Uh, he was a bird enthusiast, but not a trained scientist. He started climbing tall pine trees and tagging eaglets. And he was the first to do this systematically. And he did it for 20 years until age 79. And, of course, he was eyewitness to the decline of the population. The others right here in Alachua County in the 1980s, Florida still had a fairly healthy bald eagle population after the DDT scourge, but the other many other southern states had no nesting birds. Alabama, Mississippi, for instance, uh, Georgia from time to time, and South Carolina from time to time, and so forth. And so a plan was spearheaded here at University of Florida, along with the Sutton Research Center in Oklahoma, to take eggs out of bald eagle nests from the six county, uh, six county area, north central Florida, primarily Alachua County, and uh, take those eggs uh, up to the, the Sutton Center in Oklahoma and incubate them under hens, hatch them, and then move the, uh, the birds into those other southern states. Florida population, bald eagle population, didn't lose any numbers because both eggs were taken out of the nest early on and the female would lay another set. And so this was a five-year program, hugely successful. 275 eggs were taken from Florida. So today, when you see a bald eagle in nesting in one of the other southern states, there's a good chance that that is a descendant of a Florida bald eagle. So to me, Florida bald eagles are heroes. Definitely. One last question for you. What do you hope that people take away from reading this book? What are the main messages you're hoping they're going to get from it? One of the main messages that I hope that they take away from the book is that we're connected to the same environment that wildlife is. And when we do something to help that wildlife, to provide it with a healthy habitat, we're creating a healthy habitat for ourselves. Our quality of life is improved significantly, I think, with the resurgence of the bald eagle. I mean, who doesn't, when you see a bald eagle fly across the sky, who doesn't poke the person next to them and get all excited? Uh, we all do. Well, congratulations on the book and thank you for the stories that you're telling and the, uh, the information that you're sharing with us about this incredible creature. My pleasure and thanks for having me. Listeners, thank you for joining us for another episode of From Florida. I'm your host, Nikki Brown, and I hope you'll tune in next week.